From KRBX in Boise, Idaho, welcome to Noted, where we take a listen to and look at the stories behind notable classic works. I'm your host, Eric Garcia, music director of the Boise Philharmonic. Noted is for classical music lovers and listeners interested in getting started. Today on Noted, Shostakovich and Stalin. This is how Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony No. 4 begins. Frantic, unsettled, a piercing alarm clock or industrial whistle scream that turns into an aggressive and mocking march. This manic music marks the beginning of one of Shostakovich's most immense and important symphonies. Immense because it requires an orchestra of over 100 musicians, including expanded woodwind, brass, and percussion instruments. A full performance lasts well over an hour. Important because it provides us insight into Shostakovich's life and state of mind, as well as the treacherous cultural landscape manipulated by Joseph Stalin during that pivotal pre-war year of 1936. Shostakovich's life would change that year. A single public denouncement by Stalin would forever alter the 30-year-old's course as a composer. Shostakovich would later describe life under Stalin's rule as unbelievably mean and hard. Every day brought more bad news, and I felt so much pain. I was so lonely and afraid. His fourth symphony reads like a historical and personal document, and a chilling one. On September 12, 1906, Dmitry Dmitrievich Shostakovich was born in St. Petersburg, the second child of Dmitry Boloslavovich Shostakovich and Sofia Vasilyevna Kokolina. The young Dmitry displayed remarkable musical abilities as a child and began piano lessons at nine. In particular, the young Shostakovich displayed a great musical memory. Like the young prodigy Mozart, Shostakovich had the ability to hear music just once and immediately repeat it note for note. There is a great story from his youth testifying to this fact. In 1927, the legendary Ukrainian conductor Nikolai Malko challenged the 21-year-old Shostakovich to arrange the popular Ten Pan Alley song T for Two for full orchestra. With a catch, Malko would play a recording of the song only once. He bet Shostakovich that he could not make a full orchestral arrangement by memory in under an hour. The stakes? 100 rubles. In a mere 45 minutes, Shostakovich returned with Tahiti Trot, a full orchestral arrangement of the song. Apart from the sheer impressiveness of this miraculous feat, Shostakovich's arrangement is ingenious. His wry sense of humor is on full display. Shostakovich's musical studies progressed at breakneck speed, and he entered the Petrograd Conservatory at age 13, 
studying piano and composition. During his spare time, he could be found playing piano in silent movie houses, a perfect place for Shostakovich to show off his innate sense of humor and instinct for drama. At 18, Shostakovich completed his first symphony, which was written to fulfill the graduation requirements of the Leningrad Conservatory. Its premier performance was an enormous triumph, and successful performances soon followed in Europe and the United States. At 19, Shostakovich was world famous. But more important, he was hailed as the new hero of Russian music. Shostakovich's future looked bright and secured. But soon, like many musicians, writers, and artists, Shostakovich would encounter the manipulative wrath of Joseph Stalin. Stalin expected Soviet composers to write music that extolled Mother Russia. Positive, victorious. There was to be no darkness, that is, unless it led to victory or redemption. And in April of 1932, the Central Committee of the Communist Party released a resolution stating that music should have socialist content and should be expressed in a readily understood language and addressed to the people at large. The party also required the expression of nationalist feelings and the use of folk materials in musical works. Four years before the release of this resolution, Shostakovich's opera, The Nose, had been harshly criticized for its lack of a Soviet theme, its musical complexity, and its inaccessibility to the masses. Another opinion proclaimed that Shostakovich had strayed from the main road of Soviet art, and if he didn't change direction, his music would inevitably arrive at a dead end. But the young composer was confident and felt no need to be threatened by criticism or censorship. By 1936, the 30-year-old Shostakovich had composed, among many other smaller works, three symphonies, including the world-famous first, three film scores, three ballets, a piano concerto, and two operas. He was now halfway through his symphony number no. four when one January day, he opened the morning Pravda. The Pravda was the newspaper that had become Stalin's personal weapon. It operated under his guidance, and it yielded much power through intimidation and humiliation. Shostakovich opened the paper and read the article title aimed at him, Muddle Instead of Music. The article was a ferocious attack on him and his opera Lady Macbeth of Matinsk. It was provoked by a recent viewing by Stalin and was written on his direct orders. Stalin found the music and subject matter objectionable. This was certainly not music glorifying the ideals of the Soviet Union. I'll never forget that day, Shostakovich later said, the bitterness that has colored my life gray. Lady Macbeth of Matensk was ultimately banned in the Soviet Union until 1961, over two decades. 
To understand how much of an impact that moment had on Shostakovich, again, while he was in the middle of composing his fourth symphony, it's important to briefly discuss the opera and the language of the vicious attack. The Pravda Review read, From the very first moment of the opera, the listener is flabbergasted by the deliberately dissonant, muddled stream of sounds. Snatches of melody, embryos of musical phrases drown, struggle free, and disappear again in the din. The grinding, the squealing. To follow the music is difficult. To remember it is impossible. The music quacks, hoots, and pants. A scene in the opera that aroused particular ire involves the opera's heroine, Katerina. We find her alone in her room at night while her husband is away. A smooth-talking seducer, Sergei, visits Katerina because he cannot sleep. He attempts to seduce her, and a graphic scene of lovemaking ensues. The turbulent musical interlude that accompanies this graphic scene leaves no doubt about the action on stage. The final sentence from the Pravda article was a clear threat to Shostakovich. This is a game, it read, that may end very badly. This threat would haunt the young composer. He feared his arrest. He feared his death. His friends avoided him. He kept his suitcase packed, ready to disappear at any time. Between 1936 and 1938, during Stalin's dreadful Great Terror, millions of Soviet citizens died of starvation, execution, or were sent to the Gulag. Victims were usually taken at night. Shostakovich lay awake listening. In the months following the Pravda attack, Shostakovich continued work on the Fourth Symphony. The authorities tried everything they knew to get me to repent and expiate my sins, said Shostakovich, but I refused. Instead, I composed my Fourth Symphony. The Fourth Symphony's turmoil, anxiety, deep despair undoubtedly reflected his fragile state of mind. The premiere of the Fourth Symphony was scheduled for December of 1936 in Leningrad. Rehearsals began. Rumors began to circulate that it was a symphony of diabolical complexity and that Shostakovich had ignored the authorities and the unmistakable threat in the Pravda article. One day, an official from the Composers Union, accompanied by a dignitary from the Communist Party, showed up at a rehearsal. Shostakovich was ordered to the concert hall manager's office. Later that day, Shostakovich withdrew the symphony from further rehearsals and its premiere. He made no public comment. Following April, he began to compose his fifth symphony. The fourth was forgotten for 25 years until December of 1961 when it was finally premiered in Moscow. Shostakovich was in attendance. Stalin was dead. As with most of Shostakovich's music, big and small, you can either shrink in its presence or be emboldened by its flashes of bravery, biting sarcasm, endless introspection, fear, and empathy. So what was feared by those two men who showed up to that rehearsal? The Fourth Symphony lives in a dark chasm between the rational and irrational. 
It's a dark comedy and tragedy, side by side. Perhaps it told a truth that Stalin didn't want audiences to hear. To begin to understand Shostakovich's Symphony No. 4, we must return to the startling alarm clock, or industrial whistle, that pierces the ear. And that unrelenting march that isn't noble, but instead menacing and mocking. After the first set of themes are introduced, the march begins to settle. This is important to note. The first movement is a series of extreme peaks and valleys that result in our ever growing loss of equilibrium. We become more and more unsettled and anxious. Despite the emotional upheaval created by these extreme peaks and valleys, Shostakovich follows a very traditional musical form, a form typically used in first movements of symphonies sonata form. This musical form will help guide us through this complicated drama. The sonata form is made up of three parts the exposition, where the main themes are presented, the development, where the themes are elaborated on, and the recapitulation, where the ideas are restated, often with alterations. Shostakovich will use this traditional form as a roadmap, but he will take many unexpected detours along the way. So here we are, back in the exposition, and we arrive at the second theme. It is soft and tempered, seemingly a world away from the opening music. It is lyrical, true, but it is not a melody of conventional beauty. It's asymmetrical, and like the march, unsettled. The melody seems to meander. The lyrical music begins to twist and turn until the contortions return us to the menacing music of the beginning. And soon, the march returns. Less lean than before, Shostakovich adds more instruments, making the texture thicker, our focus blurred. And the mood becomes ever more distressing. This is music to be feared. As we expect, the music dies down once again, and we hear faint echoes of the march's heartbeat. Interrupting the march, a seemingly incongruous outcry from the woodwinds, darting here and there, seeming to taunt the march. They stay committed to their place in the music and begin to build a stern and obstinate melody. The 
melody grows insistent. Increasing in volume and intensity until the timpani puts a declarative halt to the action. After yet another flare-up from the entire orchestra, we are introduced to another melody. A melody that is distant, isolated, played by a solo bassoon with occasional brushes of accompaniment in the cellos and basses. It's similar to that second theme we encountered earlier. It's lyrical, but asymmetrical, and it also seems to wander without finding its destination. As Shostakovich continues to thread melodic line after melodic line, we stay in this new valley, adrift. But of course, Shostakovich was never adrift as a composer. He was a master of drama and pacing. He's only setting us up for the blood-curdling transition into the next major section of the movement, the development. Shostakovich does not provide a smooth handoff to the development. We are thrown into its cold waters without warning. And once we land, what do we hear? The tiny rendition of the aggressive opening march played by the woodwinds. Or maybe it's a dance. I'll let you decide. But it's still mocking. It's comical. But not much to laugh at. The music predictably builds in volume and intensity. Shostakovich is leading us to one of the most astonishing passages in all symphonic music. Before we hear it, and to understand its pulverizing impact, we'll take a slight detour and talk about another musical form, fugue. Put simply, a fugue is a musical composition or part of a composition in which themes are repeated or imitated by successively entering voices, similar to a round like row, row, row your boat. The form evolved in the 1700s during the Baroque period of music utilized most notably by Johann Sebastian Bach. In the classical period, you occasionally hear fugues in the music of Mozart and Beethoven. In the 20th century, in the music of Shostakovich. The fugue you are about to hear, however, does not resemble a fugue you would hear in the Baroque or classical periods. It's not beautiful, artistically designed lines intertwining to form a comprehensible dialogue. Instead, Shostakovich concentrates more on the pure sound of the instruments combining. The pitches seem like a secondary aspect. The fugue begins with the first violins and violas. The second violins, cellos, and basses enter one after another. Shostakovich unleashes a furious flurry of notes that inspires the greatest awe and fright. In the process, the orchestra seems to be on the verge of going off the rails. If you think that Shostakovich can't add to this chaos, think again. We are thrown further into the depths of mania as he interrupts this furious fugue with an unannounced and imposing march played by the brass and percussion. 
It stops the feud dead in its tracks. Music begins to halt, move forward again, dragging us along in the process. It is changing gears and stripping them as it goes. The unsettling stopping and starting finally cease. The music turns into a waltz. Not a graceful Viennese waltz, instead a diabolical waltz, a waltz with teeth in it. A waltz that could only be imagined in the context of the Soviet Union in 1936. It finally relents. That familiar alarm, or industrial siren, begins the recapitulation, the third and final section of the movement. Now it is not alone. Dissonant, ascending scales lumber underneath. Almost reluctant to begin this music yet again. The march returns. Now more stately, solemn, as if exhaustedly taking up the call to once again perform this military music. The themes from the exposition return, predictably with alterations. And in an interesting twist, they appear in reverse order, yet another detail that further plays with our stability and focus. In the final five minutes of this staggering first movement, a strikingly spellbinding moment occurs. Amidst this drama filled with struggle, anguish, dark humor, and military fanfares, Shostakovich turns to a solo violin to express his most introspective musical thoughts. For a brief time, the tensions settle, and we are disconnected from the cold reality of the outside world. As we approach the final moments of the movement, the music seems to be, after over 20 minutes, finally relenting, or falling exhausted. But one final scream from the orchestra dispels that conclusion. The music, or Shostakovich, won't give up. There are a few more gasps, and the Leviathan that is the first movement finally dies. A less than glorious farewell.
Back in that cold month of January of 1936, as Shostakovich was continuing to work on the Fourth Symphony, and only 10 days after that shattering attack in the Pravda, another article aimed at Shostakovich appeared. Two attacks and 10 days, enough to weaken the strongest soul. In Solomon Volkov's memoirs of Shostakovich, Testimony, the composer remembered, Everyone knew for sure that I would be destroyed, and the anticipation of that noteworthy event, at least for me, has never left me. From that moment on, I was stuck with the label, Enemy of the People, and I don't need to explain what that label meant in those days. Everyone still remembers that. I was called an Enemy of the People quietly and out loud and from podiums. One paper made the following announcement of a concert at which I was to appear. Today there is a concert by Enemy of the People, Shostakovich. We don't know for sure where in the Fourth Symphony Shostakovich was when these two articles appeared. It doesn't really matter. The anxious and claustrophobic atmosphere pervades every page of this work. In part two, we'll hear the conclusion of the symphony. A short and eerie intermezzo and the finale. Another gigantic, phantasmagoric, heart-pounding testament. Its last pages? Almost impossible to conceive. This has been another episode of Noted, produced at KRBX in Boise, Idaho. Noted is written and hosted by me, Eric Garcia. Catch up on old episodes by following the link at radioboise.org or by subscribing to Noted, wherever podcasts are found. Noted is executive produced by Wayne Burt and edited by Adam McCoy. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.